everybody. Welcome to the Analytics Anecdotes Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. And I'm your co-host, Tony Olson. This podcast is all about data science, analytics, and AI, where we share anecdotes from experts in this field. Analytics takes collaboration, and we hope you enjoy these collaborative interviews. And don't forget to subscribe and like us at Excellion.io. In this episode of the podcast, we're speaking with Gary Tao. Gary is the VP of Data and Analytics at U.S. Venture. Gary describes himself as a serial founder of internal analytics startups. Additionally, he was recognized as an industry leader in 2019 by the Analytics Hall of Fame. In this episode, we discuss some of Gary's journey in the analytics industry, what challenges he has seen, and where he believes things are going. If you want to connect with Gary, you can follow a link in the show notes to his LinkedIn profile, but otherwise, enjoy the show. Gary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate uh, you being here and joining us on a Friday. For uh, some of our guests who might not know who you are and your background, can you share a little bit about you and your story? Great. Thank you, Aaron and, uh, and Tony. Uh, glad to be here. Um, my name is Gary Tsao. Um, I, uh, I now work as the data analytics leader at uh, a U.S. venture uh, in Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, my family is in, actually in Columbus, Ohio. So uh, uh, I've been commuting, but be, mostly because of my second son was in college. I mean, in high school, ready to go to college. I did not want to relocate uh, family for the last two years in high school, but uh, I'm ready actually to relocate from Columbus to Appleton now, or maybe next year because of the COVID-19. So um, I was born in the south part of China. Uh, the city's name is Changsha, which is the capital city of Hunan province. Um, I went to Beijing for college and came to the U.S. Uh, 27 years ago uh, for graduate school. Um, now I have uh, a three master's degree, economics, uh, MBA, as well as engineering from uh, different schools. Uh, University of Arkansas, Fayetteville, Tulane, and uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I have a wife and two sons. One is college senior and one is a freshman. And um, so that's uh, about it. Do they uh, do they take after you? Are they into data and any? Are you are you breeding any data scientists over there, Gary? Uh, they, as you know, right? Most sons don't want to do the same thing as their fathers. So, uh, um, my father was uh, a mechanical uh, engineering uh, kind of person uh, for manufacturing for the automobiles. So I didn't want to do that. So my sons uh, are both of them are interested in computer science. Um, and uh, uh, they had no interest so far in economics or statistics or data science. But they have a common, sh common thread, which is problem solving. That's great. Yeah, that curi I'm, you must have instilled the curiosity, right? I Maybe hope so. The, yeah, that's awesome. So. <laughs> if they're doing computer science, I mean, they could make their way over to data science. That's easy, an easy switch, yes. I, I always say economics is one of the best uh, majors because I was, that was my undergrad uh, major. You, know, you can do a lot of things uh, with the economics major, or similar to history or English literature. But um, computer science is also very versatile. You can do a lot of other things uh, if you choose to do so. I, I totally agree. I mean, um, I was a sociology major, but I had a concentration and more analysis and research and they have computer mm -hmm. programming classes with that. So, you know, we were using a lot of data and studying that data and looking at it. So I get it. Um, but 
what led you down your path to now be in the data science field and, and how did you get to where you're at? I know you said you have three degrees, but you know, what initially sparked your interest here? Yeah, um, as I mentioned, economics was my undergrad major and also in my first graduate degree. Um, and uh, then I got exposed to statistics, right? And based on the job market, I started working on um, data analysis. And so I sometimes say myself as, okay, I'm an economist in front of statisticians. And then I can claim I'm a statistician in front of economists. So trying to be at the cross section of, uh, of different of disciplines. Uh, I did not have any interest in academic research or teaching, uh, but I was more interested in uh, problem solving uh, and then working in a company or organizations in real life. So um, I started at uh, MBNA, now Bank of America, a credit card division uh, for database marketing. Uh, that was called database marketing and modeling. Uh, now you would have called it uh, data science. Uh, that was in late 1990s. So you're doing it before it was cool, right? The, oh, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so it, it takes time, you know, it's, it's pure luck being uh, by choice, uh, not necessarily by choice, by, by doing things, by avoiding things I don't like, I somehow by default chose something that I really enjoy and continue to do. So it's, I did not have any foresight, let's say 20, 30 years ago and say, oh, this is going to be cool. I just say, okay, this fits me very well. Let's, let's get started. And then eventually, if it's cool, great. If it's not cool, I like it. So mm -hmm. good enough. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any, um, yeah. Do you have any advice for, um, you know, somebody's just starting out their career in data science and maybe they know they, this is where they want to go and they listen to the podcast today and go, man, I want to be the next Gary Tao. Um, you know, do you have any advice for them as they're starting out their careers? Yeah, a lot of things are probably uh, spoken by other well-known people, famous people. I, I'm just a, a small fish in a, in a small pound. <laughs> but uh, generally speaking, um, uh, I would say curiosity is number one, right? You have to be curious. Number two is you, you have to have this self-motivation and uh, energy to explore things and try to solve problems. And number three is more like uh, communication, trying to tell your story to other people. Because most people are, who are in the data science or statistics or economics, uh, problem solving uh, data fields, most of them are interested in solving problems. They are not interested in really small talks or maybe even, even talking to people. They are introverts and they are really um, confident, self-sufficient. Self they, they, they don't want to talk to other people. Um, but to be su successful and effective in this field, you have to balance your, uh, let's say, problem solving skills uh, and communication skills. You have to, the best combination would be uh, kind of like a ambivert, right? Not extremely uh, extrovert, because if you're extrovert, that means you are not, you cannot necessarily sit down and solve a problem. But if you're extremely introvert, then it's also not good because you cannot communicate and tell other people your story. How did, how did you go about, um, you know, if you had to uh, evolve, you know, in your, uh, in, in your career, you know, would you say that you were a great problem solver than, that then built up your storytelling abilities or is it easier to go the other way, be a really good storyteller and build up your problem solving abilities? Uh, in this field, my sense is more likely to be problem solver first and then 
since you are motivated by doing a good job, you want to see your, let's say, um, effectiveness, right? You will eventually uh, convert or kind of like a migrate or switch to be more extrovert or maybe at least ambivert to tell other people, connect with other people. So it's really um, about um, uh, balancing things. It's, 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 um, there is no fixed way of doing this, uh, but it's, it's an evolution. And in my mind, it's problem solving first, curiosity and the technique skill, uh, technical skills. And then you manage the process, right? Almost like project management and those kind of things, self-sufficient. Self and then you manage people uh, in terms of small teams and a little bit more larger teams and also provide internal clients services or external clients. And then it evolves from, everybody has a kind of like a life cycle in terms of professional development. So you do things first, and then you manage process, and then you manage people. And then you, uh, by evolution, uh, by um, natural progression, now I'm more interested in, and actually I'm, I'm doing that work now, to help uh, organizations transition from non-data native, non-data-driven culture to be more data-driven culture. So that, that is a huge challenge, and it's also very much needed in market, job market and marketplace. And that's also critical for companies' long-term success and competitive advantage. So eventually, um, but I think it's a 10-year cycle. So first 10 years, problem solving. Second 10 years, managing process and teams. The third 10 years is really organizational leading and transformation. Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, thank you for, for sharing that. And, um, you know, we're going to move over to some of the more technical questions of, of our conversation now. And sure. um, since we are the uh, analytics anecdotes podcast, I'm curious to hear um, any anecdotes from your career in analytics or data science that you can share that was kind of an aha moment and that you think someone else might find valuable. Yeah. Um, my, there are many aha moments in, in, in the past, let's say, 20-some years, right? So, uh, but the most um, obvious one is uh, that um, when I developed a model uh, in, uh, let's say, uh, student lending business, right? It's, it was a, a, a federal uh, student loan consolidation program that I was a chief data analytics officer. I was basically one-person, sh uh, one-man show, one-person shop. And then I developed a team and then from one person by myself to be five people in a year and a half. Um, that company actually went through IPO and got uh, purchased by Chase Education Finance. So we had a few billion dollars, kind of like a loan origination and manage five billion uh, portfolio and then trying to make sure that marketing is effective, effective and also the risk management is effective. So eventually, I, one day I was looking at the chart. It's, it's a very simple uh, cumulative uh, gains chart. And I say, oh, uh, it's really more about the storytelling. It's not this data, database modeler or data scientist talk. Okay, say this is a lift by this decile, this is higher than the other decile, whatever. You basically have to simplify the message and say, oh, by spending the same amount of money, you can get more revenue or profit or to get the same number of revenue or profit, you can spend less. It's really about the efficiency. It's really about 
let's say 80-20 rules, right? If you can spend 20% of the uh, money and get 80% of the potential maximum gain, that's great. You don't want to spend 100% of the investment needed to gain 100% benefit because because the more you spend, the less efficient. Because you spend 80% of the dollar amount, get the remaining 20% of the gain. So, so that's really about um, storytelling and also the efficiency and 80/20 rule. Yeah, that 80/20 rule. Um, that I mean, I it's it's interesting that you chose that as an example. I feel like because in addition to um, business decisions that you know, that an analytics effort can, can help um, uh, create better outcomes or create those efficiencies. Um, also, but applying the same concept to analytics teams of, you know, when you, um, you know, when is it too much or how much detail do you need to get? You know, sometimes, sometimes not going, not spending or investing that extra 20% uh, of effort from a team perspective uh, it's not worth that um, yeah. that extra twenty percent of results too. So it's interesting that you chose that example. I feel like that same thing can be applied to teams. That's right. That's right. Um, when I when I generally build a team, uh, it's a complementary, right? Generally speaking, you want to pick the best top twenty percent, even top ten percent of any graduation class from any school from any uh, let's say population. For example, even when you hire Intel engineers, you want to hire top 10%, top 20% from whatever you can pull from. And then same thing, data scientist, and the same thing, data analyst, and then also data architect and data uh, governance person, or maybe program, uh, program project managers, or maybe, uh, the, let's say, business engagement uh, translator manager, those kind of roles. But eventually, you, if you put all of them together, it's a cross-functional team. And then those things will, those team members will create a lot of synergy. So one plus one is more than two. Uh, in this context, it's, it's not necessarily 80-20 rule, but it's more like a synergistic rule. Um, but when you talk about the same, uh, uh, same type of investment, then incrementally, you always have to use the economic uh, principle, right? Marginal benefit versus marginal cost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what you know when we talk about we talked a little bit about the people that make up those teams and building that cross-functional team um can you speak about that and previously you brought up a little bit about like changing culture to be more data-driven um how do you deploy those those teammates to help change that culture is it you know can you speak a little bit about that in your in your experience or you know in, in your vision of, yeah. of how that works yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, when I was uh, describing who I, who I am, I did not mention this fact that I think is interesting to share. Uh, use me as, a, let's say, use case, or uh, maybe examples, right? Uh, as a person's uh, professional uh, progression. So I, I call myself as the serial founder of internal analytics startups within companies. Uh, in the past, almost like 20 years, I built uh, data analytics teams, uh, basically found those teams, created those teams in seven companies um, across industries. Uh, for example, in, uh, in Ex Express, which is a clothing company, uh, retail and e-commerce, and Cardinal Health uh, at home. Uh, there's a division called Cardinal Health at home in Cleveland, Twinsburg, uh, Ohio. 
and also at uh, um, Anthem, uh, at that time it was called WellPoint in Thousand Oaks, California, and also uh, at uh, student, loan, student loan business in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and also another company, IXI, uh, uh, later became part of Equifax, that company is in Northern Virginia, and uh, now at uh, US Venture. So um, I have a uh, kind of like a playbook or maybe kind of like a framework. Uh, it's uh, six dimensions. Number one is project. Number two is strategy. Number three is uh, data. Number four is technology. Number five is process. And number six is people. So project means that you have to deliver value specifically to answer the question, what have you done recently for me to increase your team's um, relevance and uh, visibility? Strategy is about where you are, where you want to be, and what are the gaps, and then what are the um, required resources and what are the milestones. So that way, every quarter, every year, you have to evaluate, assess the situation and come up with an optimal action plan and roadmap. Number three, data, of course, you have to make sure that data is properly managed and make sure that high quality and make sure they are, uh, let's say, um, easily accessible and then external data, external internal data, those kind of things, uh, master data and data stores, those kind of things. Uh, number four is strategy. I mean, sorry, uh, the uh, technology. The technology is very obvious because you have to have the right tool to develop algorithm or to deliver data visualization or dashboards or actually to do the compute and do the storage, right? Uh, does not matter if it's on-prem or cloud. And, and number five is process. Process is very important. Sometimes people generally uh, underestimate that. Uh, it's about um, agile process, project management, right? It's not, let's say, waterfall, but rather agile. It's not necessarily just uh, very well-defined things. You have to have different sprints to uh, fail fast, to succeed faster. Uh, and also you have to have the communication uh, cadence or process. And also you have to have the process management, change management, which is organizational change management. It's very hard. And number six is people. People has talent, of course, and the internal uh, allies and uh, partners and uh, uh, advocates and champions and also sponsors. And also externally, you also have uh, partners and vendors. For example, uh, I very much value Exilion working with uh, US Venture because that's a very reliable, trusted advisor. And when we need your help, we can leverage that. And also uh, the talent acquisition, uh, acquisition maybe uh, hiring and retaining and training um, technical staff. So all those things come together. Uh, you have a well-rounded, balanced portfolio of uh, activities. And uh, one thing that uh, to make sure that our team is um, uh, making the right impact and also playing an important role, helping the cultural uh, shift, uh, number one, we have to be humble because you, you have to be received, well received by the local environment. Otherwise, you will just be rejected, right? Number two, being humble is not enough. You have to also balance that with new ideas, being assertive, being aggressive, being more visible, being, doing better job in selling your ideas and capabilities and uh, expertise. And so not only taking, let's say, request, Okay, this is what you want me to do? Okay, I do it. But that's not enough. You have to also say, oh, by the way, by doing this slightly differently, you can do, you can see this benefit that you have not necessarily expected to see. Uh, those subtle, let's say, salesmanship and uh, influencing ability, 
is very critical. So when I hire people, I try to hire people with that, that flexibility or uh, uh, let's say uh, adaptability to really uh, have curiosity and the ability to uh, desire to expand coming out of their comfort zone. If every day, every week, every, every quarter, nobody has challenged you, you feel very comfortable, I think that's in a dangerous situation. You, you have to stretch, out, stretch yourself out of your comfort zone. And then being discomfort is a good thing. Otherwise, you will not necessarily be able to learn and grow. So, so that's, that's very hard. And this is a very long, let's say, a distance marathon. It's not a sprint. And then any company that I've worked in, right, uh, if you have only a two years, one year, two year time frame for organization transformation or kind of like a change, major shift, that's impossible. Anything has to be three or more years because think about all the normal startup companies. Uh, the first three to five years, even sometimes 10 years, it's below water, under uh, losing money. But most companies will not tolerate any, let's say, new initiative losing money after three years or four years or five years, right? So you have to provide the visibility of value and sometimes tangible, sometimes intangible, but people have to really uh, be your advocate and say, yeah, without this team, I cannot do my job properly. So I need this team. That's the best endorsement. I feel like you just gave us a master's class on, uh, on how to, on starting up uh, your own analytics practice. You can tell you've done it a couple of times. Yeah, sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a, I've seen these movies before, but I share the general framework, but uh, I don't necessarily want to open too much of the uh, battle scars on my back, right? So <laughs> nobody wants to hear the sad stories. They want to hear inspirational stories. Right. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. So, so I got follow up then. So like, those, like, you know, we kind of talked about the aha moments or, you know, some, uh, some, some, kind of your favorite anecdote it talked about your framework a little bit of how you set up these teams and how you how you promote that organizational change um you know if you could really if there is one thing that you could really distill some of your experience or watch out for do you have any gotchas that um, anybody that might be launching their own analytics team or data science team right now uh, you know what's a gotcha that you can you might be able to help them avoid or tell them to watch out for right now yes um the number one rule is companies' uh, top leadership um, commitment and uh, support and advocacy. If that's not there, uh, no matter how brilliant you are technically and uh, tactically, um, the, the journey will take much longer detour you will have much more uh, road bumps, roadblocks, and your work would be much less uh, effective. So the number one thing is always make sure when you come to a company to start a data analytics team or function or group, um, you have to make sure that you have a very strong sponsorship from uh, the CEO or the board of directors or very, uh, strong top leadership, kind of like a sponsorship and mentorship and a coach. Thank you. That's, I think that's great advice. Um, one of our questions that we always like to ask is, you know, what part of analytics is the most undervalued, do you feel? Um, 
you see a lot of, you, there's a lot of things in, uh, in data science and analytics that are getting hype. Um, but what do you feel is most under, undervalued? The most undervalued uh, thing or function or work is still um, data engineer. They are the backbone, they are the foundation, they are the unsung heroes behind the scene. And their work is not well known and well understood and has a very high risk of being undervalued, underappreciated, also underexposed. Uh, because those people all also are brilliant people. They are very professional. They work very hard. Their the value they deliver is absolutely significant. But since they are real engineers, they are introverts. They are really not the people who are uh, kind of like talking their horns, tooting their horns, and say, "Okay, yeah, look at what I did." They they just move on. They just continuously day in day out deliver value. So uh, their work has been, uh, I would say, easily under, under, uh, undervalued. That's the home uh, phone. The home yeah, phone, Gary, so it's that's a, a, just a, no. it, it's, a, it's a spam. No. It's a, <laughs> no worries. I don't know I, how to, I'm going to um, probably disconnect any, any phone that's not a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, man, I don't think I have. I, I haven't had a home phone in, in quite a while. I have this. This phone is from my Virginia days. It's probably yeah. 10 years of old phone number um, because just it's internet anyway, but it's not a uh, phone line. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> by, awesome. by the way, the, the unsung heroes of, of data engineers, uh, my my wife's father, uh, so my father-in-law is a data engineer. So I'm gonna splice that clip and specifically send it to him because he'll just, you know, be super happy <laughs> once he gets. Yeah, yeah. See if I'm a warm, kind of like a warm and fuzzy person, I want to hug them every day. <laughs> I want to give them, uh, give them whatever the appropriate appreciation. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I sometimes, if I was not able to. Uh, properly express my uh, gratitude and uh, uh, appreciation. I feel uh, I'm, I'm sorry because I was not a good person to, uh, not a woman, fuzzy person um, as an introvert. Um, but I, I get used to saying things to express my feelings and more. So, and uh, even at age, let's say I'm probably early fifties, I, I still learn new things and uh, I, I look forward to the next challenges in at same same job and same every day and then every mm -hmm. next next year. So that's yeah, the curiosity, yeah. right? You have to renew yourself every year or every few years. Exactly. And you know, what do you think right now in data science and, and analytics has you the most excited or, or energized right now? Um, I think it's the most exciting thing is really the auto automated machine learning, AutoML. Um, it's a little bit ahead of time, ahead of its time, because most companies are not necessarily fully leveraging getting the obvious ROIs because uh, many data scientists are not developing models every day. Uh, they sp still spend 70, 80, even 90% of the time doing research on data preparation and understanding business uh, logic and rules. Mm -hmm. um, 
developing algorithm is kind of like a, a very small portion of their time, but that's really AutoML uh, will play that role. Um, so a lot of data scientists are very comfortable using Python and R or SAS or other languages to really develop algorithm, even, even using them to prepare data and clean, cleanse the data and develop algorithms and then also scoring uh, the final files. But those things could be actually automated uh, in a, with a much higher efficiency. So I would like to share with uh, future data scientists or maybe current data scientists and say, make sure that you don't ignore the trend of AutoML. Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, some, do you feel like some data scientists might not like the AutoML aspect because they would rather know what they're kind of making their own, like, yes. like what the box is exactly that they're putting stuff into? Exactly. That's, that's really the craftsmanship versus the, uh, uh, let's say, assembly line mass production, right? So you have to balance that. And, uh, but you know that if you build a car, an antique car, and then you, you handmade it, you will never be able to compete in a massive economic scale uh, mm. versus against the, uh, the assembly line, let's say for T, Model T, right? So um, craftsmanship has its place. But in the long term, I suspect that um, uh, 10 years from now, uh, we still will have craftsmanship uh, for actual coding in R, Python, or other languages. But uh, some people, if they are really strong in problem solving, they have the foundation of uh, statistics, statistics and, um, and also understanding the, the, uh, the ins and outs of, of the development models and developing algorithms and implementing algorithms, they, they don't necessarily have to really uh, write uh, lines of codes, uh, thousands of them, right? You can still supervise them, manage them, use your judgment to control the process, but you don't have to necessarily right, too much of the lines. A lot of the interface will be there. And that, that trend actually started in late 1990s, for example. SAS had, had a, a product called Enterprise Miner. That was already AutoML. Uh, but uh, it was uh, uh, taking a long time to, to actually get uh, evangelized. And then later on, Altrix became more prevalent. But people are not using AutoML from Altrix. They're mostly using Altrix for uh, data integration, exploration, and uh, mm -hmm. data cleansing. Um, now we have DataRobot and DataIQ and, uh, and also some other players. Um, so I, I think it's pretty promising. Totally agree. Yeah, excited to see where that technology goes. Um, yeah, but the other, th the other thing is that if I come back, right, look at the entire uh, functional job, data, data analytics space, data science, um, algorithm, de algorithm development is probably less than 5% of the entire time consumed by data scientists. That's the yeah, easy I... part. The most difficult part or most challenging part is really uh, defining the business problem and then create an equation to translate that into a data science problem. And then after that, then implement it and then convince people to see the value and also uh, convince people, change people's behavior to actually use the algorithm to take different actions to actually get the better result or outcome. Yeah, one of the things that I always kind of go back to is that you, somebody has to do the analysis still. Somebody has to do that preparation and understand yes. the business problem yes. and clean up the data. You can't, 
can't automate that yet, you know? So, no, no, no. <laughs> and I, and I really liked your quote about and the way that you phrased that with craftsmanship and that mm -hmm. craftsmanship still has its place and always will have its place. I think that, um, yes. I think that is extremely appropriate in the, um, your, your, uh, assembly line analogy also kind of, uh, really made that visible, right? When we talk about yes. like scaling analytics or scaling data science models across an enterprise. Yes, I, I remember seeing this. Uh, there was a quote from maybe McKinsey study saying, okay, there's a huge gap of data scientists uh, in the job market. And then in the next few years, a lot of masters of business analytics programs in different colleges, universities uh, emerged. And then they churn out a lot of quote unquote data scientists or master's degree of uh, business analytics. Um, that's, I think, uh, that's a shortcut. It's not necessarily the right approach. Um, and then the market can see through that because I was, uh, some people may not like what I say now, 80% of those people are still just people have a degree. They have no, they don't have, uh, let's say necessarily, necessarily the right skill set or problem solve, problem solving or problem framing or the communication skills or the, the experience or the proper coaching because those programs never actually connected with the actual practitioners they were generally taught by professors what do what do they know professors know in your, your time problem solving right so that's just it's still a disconnect and, and that's it, that's why i i see if we have more as the practitioners in data science right from different companies going to teach part-time in those programs, then that will make a huge difference. That, that's really interesting to me because I think that there's a lot of, like you said, data scientists that start in academia and then transition to corporate world and become pr practitioners. Practitioners, but you know, it's a it's it's a challenging process. And yes, you're right. you know, it, do you have any advice for maybe that somebody is more on that um, that academic area that is looking to to join to join the practitioning workforce? Um, and advice in that area? Yeah, it's a, it's a two-way uh, two selection process. You have to choose to do this. And also the other em the employers have to choose you to actually be there, right? So um, I, I would say if you are right now in academia and you wanna explore this possibility of going to the corporate world, uh, practicing data science, um, there are, there are a few things you keep, keep in mind, to keep in mind. Number one, if you are not interested in theories and research and teaching, you may consider trying out, right, in the in corporate world. And then the, the challenge for you is to realize how much uh, uh, you can tolerate, tolerate in, in the, let's say, organization, uh, large organizational, let's say, dynamics. Uh, you have to do active sale, selling or sales job for your team and also for yourself, almost like you are at the bench in a consulting environment. Uh, if you don't do your own, uh, do sales job for yourself, you have to partner with another, another person who sees your value and then actively promotes you to, to build a pipeline of projects for you or maybe uh, work for you, the, the intake of the project, have a funnel coming in and then you can solve the problems. So the, the pipeline, the, what we call the rainmakers, right? They, who actually deals with the internal client's need and translate that into things that you can do. That's a critical uh, part. If you can do that, great. If you, 
if you cannot do that, at least you have to make sure you partner with somebody who can do that for you. The rainmakers, and, that's from that's from the legal practices, right? That's a rainmaker is defined as people who actually uh, make things happen because they are there. You, if you are, let's say, waiting for people to come to you, no, nothing will come your way. Right. That's great. Yeah, it, it speaks to number two, right? Where you talk about selling your experience, mm -hmm. uh, and then number one being humble along the way. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. But the good part, if you move from academia to the corporate world, is that you have a lot of challenging, interesting problems to solve. You, you get satisfaction from improving processes, influencing, influencing other people in their behavior or their outcome. Um, and also, you can help uh, organizations do better in terms of competition uh, in the marketplace. So that is, uh, I would say, hugely rewarding. Totally. Um, well, we are uh, going to wrap up here, but before we get to that point, we like to ask a, a final kind of more of a fun question, I would say, uh, Gary, and that is if data science was a superhero, which hero would they be and why? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, Spider-Man because uh, he's, he's very young and then still trying to figure out his place. Um, similar to the role, chief data officer or chief analytics officer or chief data and analytics officer. It's very young professional, very young, uh, let's say, uh, position. And still, I would say, uh, underappreciated or undervalued or misperceived and still more room for growth. I like that. Yeah, I mean, maybe a little arrogant too sometimes with uh, <laughs> absolutely yes that's why they that's associated with youth right and also yeah. early stage of the uh, of the life cycle yeah but all around uh, good for everyone so well this has been great gary you know thank you again for joining us tony and i really appreciate it um this was a fun conversation so thanks for making it happen uh, you know, can our guests follow you on Twitter or LinkedIn or how should they connect with you if they listen to this and, and want to find you and, and talk more with you? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, I have an account in Twitter, but I really don't use it. I use Twitter for, to follow my son's uh, swim practice and swim team. So now <laughs> they are, they graduate from high school. So I don't use t Twitter anymore. So LinkedIn is the best place. And uh, uh, I appreciate you inviting me here and to share with my, share my story with other people. So thank you, Aaron and uh, Tony. And, and I, I think um, northeastern part of uh, Wisconsin has a lot of uh, potential and room for data science to grow. We agree. That's why we're here, right? So thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Analytics Anecdotes podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from Exilion Partners, you can subscribe to our podcast with your favorite podcast application, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn, or reach out to us directly at www.excelion.io. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.